0: Well, good morning. I'm Eric Anderson, one of the elders here at Faith Church. It's my privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 4, and we're going to continue continue in our series in the book of John. Um, It was very thoughtful of Pastor Mike to get sick on a Sunday that he actually isn't preaching or wasn't scheduled to, so he's not here today. Um, But uh, you could be praying for him, he came down with something tough when he was on a uh, a trip uh, to a conference here this past week now some of you have might know that I occasionally drive an old pickup truck here to church it's a nineteen fifty one Chevy that I've restored that actually came from the family farm in Kansas now I don't know anything about farming but I when when my dad and all the uncles passed away there were a bunch of uh, pieces of machinery that were left over from from the estate and i wa- I told my cousin I wanted something and he managed to uh, squirrel away an old truck for me, and I have taken that and have been driving it. This old truck used to be part of the harvest. It would would haul a, a rack that would collect hay from these gigantic machines that were harvesting the wheat on the family farm. That massive machine is called a combine. Now, I don't know anything about combines except that they're really, really cool and interesting to watch. And by the name, you can tell that a combine does a lot of things all at once. The first thing a combine does is that it cuts the wheat stalks right near the bottom, near the dirt, and lifts the entire uh, stalk with all the, the wheat kernels into, a, into another chamber where these big blades whirl around and, and I think it's called winnowing. It kind of beats everything and causes the little wheat kernels to get separated from the, the stalk. And those wheat kernels somehow fall into one side of the machine, whereas the, the, what's left, the hay, is moved to another side. And so then you have the wheat kernels that are being uh, co- put together in, in big containers, either in, within the combine or sometimes with a machine that rides alongside. And then some of the fancy combines actually take that wheat stock and then make it into hay bales. It's really amazing. And it is a machine that does many, many things. And I share all that to contrast the reality of the, Lord, the harvest that the Lord calls us to, because it's nothing like the way that a combine works. The work of God's harvest is complex. It's done by all of us, and none of us are called to try to do absolutely everything all at once. And so it's kind of a, a picture of, some, of how some of the story that we're going to read this morning is going to unfold So God is going to speak to us, I trust, from His Word from John chapter 4. Before I go any further, let me just uh, uh, come before the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, I pray this morning that we would be awake and alert, that our ears and our minds would be open to the work that You have done already to cause people to trust their lives to You and that they would become worshipers. And I pray that would be true for ourselves as well. Do this work in us. Make us into worshipers in spirit and truth, that we would be, in fact, workers for the harvest as well. Thanks for the challenge that you will bring to us from your your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, at the beginning of chapter 4, we are reading about an encounter that a Samaritan woman has with Jesus. And a little bit of background now. Samaritans were sort of Jewish kind of a, a, a mixed race and a mixed religion. Uh, it, it came about from the time of the captivity when the Jews, m- many or most of the Jews, were led away by the Babylonians into other cities and held captive for for about 70 years. During that time, some of the Jews were left behind, so to speak, in the cities and surrounding area of Jerusalem, and many of them intermarried with the, the Gentiles that were there, the uh, Assyrians. And, their offspring ended up having their own identity, somewhat separate from the, the Jews themselves. And it gave birth to almost a new race and certainly a new religion that was kind of like that of, of worshiping Yahweh, but not quite. Uh, the, the Samaritans uh, held that a, a certain mountain was the place to be gathered. And in fact, there was a temple there. And uh, so they didn't acknowledge Jerusalem as the, as the centerpiece of God's work. And, uh, and, and maybe not surprisingly, Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. And even at the time of Christ here was very different, very separate cultures. Even though they're co-located in the same area, there was uh, definitely some gigantic barriers between the Jews and the Samaritans. And that brings us to, the, to Jesus now walking from, uh, from Judea, walking north, to, uh, into Galilee where he was from, and he crossed over into that area through Samaria. And he he happened upon, and I'm sure it's not coincidental, Jacob's Well, which is uh, an ancient well that was dug by Jacob and was used to feed uh, and take care of his, his cattle and, and his family. And there he meets a Samaritan woman sitting at the well, uh, drawing water from it. And he does a remarkable thing. He talks to her. And he says, could you give me a drink? And in doing that, it begins this amazing process of breaking down barriers and of proclaiming something even of who he is. We'll pick up in verse 9 of chapter 4. The Samaritan woman then said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So in his very first words to her, he's breaking down barriers. And I I speculate, I wonder, if it's possible that this was the first Jewish man that this woman had ever spoken to. I don't know that that's true, but it seems possible based upon the antagonism that these two peoples had for one another and the fact that she might not uh, get the privilege of speaking to a man, let alone a Jewish man. Well, Jesus responded to her starting in verse 10. but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty any more or have to come here to drink, to draw water. So here's Jesus speaking obviously, metaphorically, of himself and who he is and what he has to offer her and to the entire world. And as so many people do, she takes him absolutely literally and says, oh, living water, and I won't be thirsty, great. Maybe he's dumping a water pump down in the well and it'll go into the town and we're going to take care of this thing. And she, uh, she takes him just at face value and doesn't really understand that he's talking about eternity rather than about the here and now. She is concerned about her troubles for the day. She's concerned about the work she has to do and she makes the mistake of thinking that uh, that he's going to somehow help her with what is right in front of her. Now that's not that uncommon of a mistake to make and I actually think that we do that in our lives and in in churches all the time. We we hear God's promises for eternity and we want to apply them for today. God, you're going to help me have a really good day. God, you're going to give me my best life now. God, you're going to... I need you to do this right now, right in front of me. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's really often not the main point that God is driving home in our lives. And so this woman is still kind of in process of learning a bit more about who Jesus is and what he's going to offer her. So Jesus says to her, well, why don't you bring your husband here? And she says, I don't have a husband and then uh, we pick up in verse 18. For you have, he says, you speak correctly. You have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. So what you have said is true. And the woman says to him, said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, she did what, what all good debaters would do when she's confronted by her sin. She changed the subject. She knew she was kind of caught. She knew there was something special and remarkable about this Jewish man that he would know so much about her. And so her way of handling it was not to debate the the truth of what he said, but rather to change the subject. And uh, so she starts talking in verse 20 about the fact that the Samaritans worship on a mountain at a temple that by then had been destroyed, but still uh, went and still to this day go to a mountain nearby, and the Jews saw Jerusalem as the centerpiece of their religion. And so she's bringing that up, I think, just by way of trying to do a little dance to get away from what he was just trying to confront in her life. And that's that's really common. That's That's a way that we human beings often deal with being confronted about anything. I don't know, have you ever shared the gospel with somebody, and the next thing you know, you're talking about Something completely irrelevant or obscure related to what you started out to talk about. I remember, or, or maybe they, the first thing out of their mouths is they start talking about what church they go to, or that you go to, or who you voted for, or who knows what. You know, anything to avoid the being confronted by the truth of the gospel. I remember one time sharing uh, my faith with a coworker, and he immediately said to me, "Well, what church do you go to?" And I said, "Well, I go to an evangelical free church," and he said. He was thinking like gluten-free, and he said, Oh, cool. A church with no evangelicals, I'd like to go there. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah, just a way of kind of kind of deflecting the whole conversation, and I'm sure it threw me off track. And I don't even remember if I ever got back on track. Or maybe you've confronted someone with sin and they talk to you like a lawyer, like saying, Wow, these extenuating circumstances or um, you know, the sun was in my eyes, or whatever it was. It's always kind of this deflection about what actually happened to, to get, it, get away from any guilt on our part. Or how about if you're talking to some... I remember one time talking to a man and asking, Tel, tell me a little bit about your thought life. And he said, well, I've been thinking a lot about Calvinism and dispensationalism and wondering how these end time things are going to work out. And I thought, you really missed the point of what I was asking. And it was just a way for perhaps for us to get off and start talking about something that wasn't at all central to anything personal. That's what she's doing. Um, And Jesus is quick, quick to bring her back to what it is he's trying to accomplish. In verse 21, after this discussion about where the proper place to worship is, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and and those who worship him will worship in spirit and in truth. Now Jesus is right in the midst of fulfilling exactly what he just said to her. That Samaritan temple that was on that mountain had already been destroyed at the time that he was talking to her and the the Jewish temple that's in Jerusalem is not long for this world. you know the at the time of Jesus's death on the cross, the temple veil was ripped apart at the at the temple and Not many years later, the temple itself was completely destroyed. His death on the cross for our sin is the only hope that we have for worshiping. And his resurrection reveals the power of God over death. And we're called to repent of our sins and put our trust in him and believe that he died for us and was raised again for our sake, that we could worship him in spirit and in truth. This is not about a place. This is about a person. And that's where this this incredible message is coming through from Christ to this woman and to us. And when Jesus says that salvation is from the Jews, He's doing more than just picking at the Samaritan understanding of, of Scripture, although that's there's there's elements of that as well. I think the context shows that He's talking about Himself. About Him being... God's chosen person for the work of the work of the sacrifice on the cross. That He is God incarnate and He Himself is the hope and the Savior of the world. And we're, He is pointing the, this woman back to Himself to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth because of what Jesus Christ has done. Let's talk for a moment about spirit and about truth. Maybe that's a little bit of a confusing topic. Some, some would say that's about the heart and the head. That the head is the, the understanding, the truth of, of things, and the heart is the spirit coming alive within us. Uh, there's certainly some, some merit to that. Truth is what is right and what is true regardless of how we perceive it. It's, it's like what Colossians 1.5 and James 1.18 says. It says that the word of truth is the gospel that brings life. And whether anyone responds to the gospel, the word of God is truth. The Gospel that's presented in the Scriptures is true, and it, it's the foundation for, for which all, all of the, the work of God is accomplished. And then in John, the same book, in John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. These are the foundational elements of the Gospel and of the work that God is about to do. And the work of God is by the Spirit. So you have the truth and the Spirit at work. The Spirit is the Spirit of God awakening the Spirit of man. Uh, just a, a couple weeks ago, Jesus was teaching Nicodemus about what it means to be born again, and he was completely confounded. And once again did that thing of literally uh, listening to Jesus and going, well, how can a giant man be in the womb again? And just just like the woman at the well did, and uh, what Jesus said to him in John 3.6 is, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So you have the Spirit of God at work with the truth of God to change a heart. And both of these are at work in this woman, right at this moment. Uh, in verses 25-26, through 26, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, when he comes, He will tell us all things. And then Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. And so Jesus Christ has proclaimed Himself to be Messiah, to be the Christ. And she knew enough of the truth of God's Word to know that a Messiah was coming. She knew that the the Messiah was coming to to straighten all these things out. And Jesus speaks the truth that He is that Messiah, that He's the Christ. And then the Spirit of God comes to work. The Spirit of God awakens the Spirit in this woman. And she has, she has changed. And it, it, even though the Scriptures don't use words like conviction and repentance here, there was conviction and repentance in her heart. And we know it because in the upcoming events, uh, in just the next moments, she is completely different. She's been undone. She's been, her sin has been laid bare. She's acknowledged it. And the, the Spirit of God has begun a tremendous work in her. And the first thing she, that comes to mind for her to do is to testify. Is to tell others about what has happened to her. So she is now the, the catalyst for God reaching this foreign town, this town of Sychar. Because she leaves She forgets why she even came to the well, leaves everything there, and we'll pick up in in John 27. Now the disciples, by the way, are kind of watching what's going on and puzzling over everything. They don't have much to say yet, Um, but but God is moving in this woman right away, starting in verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to her people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Then these people went out of the town and were coming to him. Well, let's just stop for a second and do a little observing about this scene. It's really it's really remarkable. Um, this town is very close by, I think about a quarter of a mile, if I believe the map and the back of my Bible, where Jacob's well is in relation to Sychar. And it's a small town. I mean, and you know what small towns are like, right? Everybody knows everybody, and everyone knows what's going on. There is no hiding that the fact that this woman's been married five times and that she's living with her boyfriend. Everyone's going to know that. And for all I know, in the crowd of people that she went back to see, there's her, there's her ex-husbands and her boyfriend in the crowd, Right? That's just how small towns work. You can't get away from one another. And yet, what's happened to her is that her conviction and her repentance has made her not care. Not care about what people think of her or about what kind of sin has been exposed in her life. She says, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. She is, she is excited to share with others what God has done to change her life and to change her heart. And it's powerful. It's so powerful because these people believe her. Of all the things, they believe this woman who has lived some kind of interesting soap opera life and now is, is professing the, the things of God to them. One thing that I, I take from this is that when we testify about God, when we share a testimony about what God is doing in our lives, we need to be like this woman. We need to be transparent. And we need to to be willing to explain to people how God changed my heart. What kind of sin He dealt with. What kind of problems and difficulties were overcome by the work and the Spirit of God. We don't need to just testify about neat things that God did or visions we saw in a tortilla when we were eating breakfast. That's fine, okay? But it's not... It's not personal, and it's not at the heart of the matter. She was transformed by the power of the Spirit of God, and she is going to share with anybody who will listen. There is so much power in this testimony. And we're called to this as well. Testifying to the work of God in her life is a great example of worshiping God, of giving glory to Him in spirit and in truth. Because what she said is true. What happened to her is true. And the response is spiritual, because it's just such a remarkable response. Again, verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. They were; These people were immediately impacted by what this woman had to say. Now, I'm going to skip a few verses and, and continue on this narrative to see what happens to these town people. But we're going to come back to it, because verses 31 through 38 uh, have to do with Jesus teaching His disciples about what's going on, and it's really central, but set it aside just for a moment, and let's, let's continue on and observe what happens with these people from the town. They, they also, just like the woman, have an encounter with Jesus. They believed the woman, and they believed in Jesus, the Scriptures say, and they immediately went to Him. They talked with Him at the well. They invited Him to come and spend time with them, and he did. And for two days, he and the disciples went into this town and they interacted with all of these people. And this is a miracle. It really is. When you think about it, this woman comes blazing out from the, from the well with this remarkable story and everybody believed her and everybody knew that somehow, I don't know how, that Jesus Christ was sent to them and they are transformed. It's just It's just so powerful. Um, Picking up in verse 41, And many more believed because of His word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Oh, man, that's really something. That That is some incredible harvesting going on for the kingdom of God. We know this is the Savior of the world. And these people worshiped and glorified God, the Savior, in the same spirit and the same truth that the woman did. They believed. They believed in God's Word. They believed this woman's testimony. They they encountered God Himself in, in two days of spending time with Christ, and they were transformed by that relationship. That is really, really a powerful testimony to what God can do in in saving the people. And it's, it's an amazing and wonderful thing that God cares enough for this little town in the middle of a foreign country, so to speak, to reach out to them. Very much a providential thing that Jesus chose to walk and stop by, the, by this well. Now, I want to do... There's one more story in this chapter, and I want to hit it just briefly before we go back to untangle exactly what God is doing here in the midst of all of this. After those two days that He spent with these Samaritans... Jesus go, uh, continues on his journey, going north into Galilee, and the scriptures say that he was welcomed by the Galileans. And I'm putting "welcomed" in air quotes here, because what that what it also says is they that he was without honor in his hometown. So this welcoming was more was very much from a, a skeptical perspective. I, I, I kind of think of it like. I don't know if you've ever, you know, done a, seen a magic show where somebody comes to a child's birthday party, you know. The little kids watch The Magician and they're just in awe. Wow, he can saw people in half. That's just neat. They just take it right at face value. And adults kind of do the same thing, although we perhaps don't actually attribute a divine capability to a magician. We just accept it as great entertainment. But then you've got these junior high kids and they're like teenagers and they're like, teenagers. And they, they want to get closer and closer because they want to know how he did that. Like I know he didn't really make that stretch that rope by magic, so I wonder how he did that. And it's all it's the entire show is done from the perspective of a skeptic. And I kind of think the Galileans are in that boat here because of the way that Jesus interacts with them. When um, when this official comes to to interact with Jesus, this this man a, a Jew uh, comes and interacts with Christ. And it's obvious that he knew of God, of Jesus's work already. In fact, twice in this passage, it's, uh, the Bible mentions that the wedding at Cana. That this was uh, that Jesus had already performed a miracle. So I I speculate that this man was either at that wedding or heard of what Jesus did at that wedding when he turned water into wine, and he had faith that God could do something with the trouble that he had, and the, uh, the man asks Jesus to heal his son. And he begs Jesus. And, and, and Jesus uses the opportunity in verse 48 to kind of speak to him, but really to the crowd. And he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Well, this man responds like, that's, that's not it. He says, sir, come down before my son dies. He's desperate. He's calling on Jesus. He's not a skeptic. He is calling on the only hope he, he knows of to call on the name of the Savior, the man who turned water into wine to help him and to heal his son. And it's evidence that this man was a man of faith and not a skeptic at all. And he had seen what Jesus had done in the past and he was going to him as his only hope. It's a genuine faith. And Jesus knows that because in verse 50, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live and then the bible says this man believed the word that jesus had spoken to him and went on his way so this man has believed first enough he first he believed enough to ask jesus to do something and second he believed jesus had in fact done something even before he saw that his son had been healed and it's powerful to see that god is going to use this man to testify about the, the very thing that Jesus is accomplishing. Uh, he, gets to the, he gets home and they, and he finds in fact, his son has been healed. And they compare notes. Well now, okay, what time did he get healed? Well, about three in the afternoon. Well, that's right when Jesus told me that go to go and that your son had been healed. And, and then the Bible says again, he believed and all his household. So God moves in the heart of this man yet again, to, to, for the third time, emphasize and, and, and draw to life his own faith. And it's clear that this man testified as to how all of this had happened. He told his family about Jesus. There's no other way that they would have believed. I'm, I don't know if this was an infant son or an older son, but I'm picturing this man, if, if in fact the son is old enough to understand, telling his son, you've been healed, and it was Jesus Christ who healed you. And telling his wife, our son was healed by the power of Jesus Christ. And telling all of his family, and they believed. And here here this man is testifying of the power of God. And again, we see the fruit being born in the lives of those who, uh, by the witness and testimony of those who have been with him, and they believed and followed him. And it's just marvelous. Another powerful story that enables us to see that God is is greatly at work. He was at work in that woman. He was at work in that woman's city. He was at work in this man and his son and his family, and there was already great fruit for the kingdom of God. So now, what's, what's been going on? How did this happen? Now we have to go back. We have to go back through uh, to verses 31 through 38, which is we're, we're kind of going back now to the same setting as before at the well. Here's the woman at the well, and Jesus talking to her, and Jesus is going to be teaching his disciples about what's going on and how they're going to be involved. Now, the disciples had been uh, gone off to town to get food, so I'm picturing them returning from town, and they've got their sacks of Chick-fil-A and, you know, sodas and drinks and all that. They come back to the well, and, and, uh, and Jesus says to them, I have food that you don't know about. And they're like, oh, well, now he tells us. What? Who gave him food? Now, you owe me for this sandwich, right? You know, they're doing just what the woman did. They're taking him literally. And they hear him say that, and they don't know what it means. And uh, so Jesus says to them, well, let me explain. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, the context of what he's talking about is that he is being fed by obedience, and the obedience is for him to be proclaiming himself and the kingdom of God in the lives of these people that we have been talking about. In the Samaritan woman, in her people, in her town, in the man uh, whose son was healed, and in his entire family. And then he does this amazing thing. He invites the disciples to be a part of the harvest, of the work that He has already been accomplishing. It's, uh, it's sort of like the Great Commission, but it's not. It's, maybe it's the First Commission. I don't know. But it's, a, it's God inviting the disciples to be a part of a harvest that they didn't even know was going on. And then He begins to teach them by a, a really powerful visual example of what's going on. So I have to credit Pastor Mike for uh, pointing out to me that Samaritans today and back then, and it's true because I looked up on Google and I know that's true, all of the Samaritans wore white. They wear white head coverings and white robes. And now here we are and the the woman has gone back, proclaimed him to be true. They're coming to him. And as Jesus speaks the following words, you see this this. Uh, throng of people dressed in white coming to the well. And Jesus says in verse 35, Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. So to translate He's saying to his disciples, now you haven't done anything yet other than going to town to get Chick-fil-A. And I have been sowing the, the, fruit, the fruit of eternity in the hearts of these people. And now you get to be with me to be a part of reaping for the harvest. So I have no doubt that the disciples went with him into town and spent two days with Jesus and with these people And they were invited in a miraculous way, just like we are, to be in a partnership in the gospel. They're invited by Jesus to be a part of the harvest. Uh, Jesus is the one doing all the saving here, but we get to be a part of of the harvest. In verse 37, here the saying holds true, Jesus says, One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labor, and you have entered into their labor. So he is privileging the, the disciples with the opportunity to be a part of the harvest that they didn't even know was starting. And it's it's really a marvelous and wonderful thing. And it's no doubt that the, these disciples are just in awe of what God is doing in the hearts of these Samaritans that this woman has reached. Years ago, I Teresa and I had the privilege of going to Japan for over a month and ministering to American military that were there, and this was like 2003, and there had been a missionary couple that had been there for years and years, and they were rotating out. Another couple was coming in to pick it up, and there was a gap, and for five weeks, we spent time with these military, and every meeting I had, I would offer an invitation if you would like to... Pray with me to receive Christ, you come forward. In every meeting, someone came forward. I couldn't believe it. Every, it was like we were saying, this is the easiest thing in the world. All you do is say, Do you want to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And everyone says, Yes. I thought, Wow, I'm just such an evangelist, you know. And uh, the reality is, the reality is, okay, I knew that I was getting to harvest that which someone else had been reaping for years and that this work had been so powerful and was so helpful and so God-centered that when I came in and filled in for a few weeks, I got the privilege of, of harvesting. It was like fruit from a tree that was just low-hanging. Just grab it and grab it and throw it in a basket. Just absolutely loved it. It really had nothing to do with me. That's kind of what's going on here with the disciples. And it's a, it's a joyous thing. And we are so privileged to get to be a part of this harvest. So, I want to talk about some some observations and maybe applications for what we have been talking about for our own lives. Um, and the first one is this. Um, as we've seen these stories unfold, there's a clear progression, an order of how these things work in relation to one another. Um, we start out with spirit and truth, as we, as Jesus spoke of, and then we also have this call to repentance because of the Spirit of God, working in the Spirit of a person, and the truth of, that, that is, is at the heart and the foundation of all of this. Repentance is next, which brings about worship. You know, only those who know God can worship God. And these people have been transformed, and the first thing God, Jesus says here is that He calls us to worship. And then further, we're also nourished and encouraged by the, by the hand of God as we follow Him. And you can see that in these metaphors that Jesus used to teach them. He talks to the woman about living water that she's drawing, and he's going to nourish her and encourage her with water that will keep her sustained for her whole life all into eternity. And then he speaks to the disciples about this process of evangelism and using the, the fact that my food, what sustains me, is to do the will of Him who sent me. So God is promising nourishment to us in this journey. And then he also calls us into obedience. And in this particular case, the obedience relates to being willing to testify to what God is doing in our lives. To share Christ, to share this message with others. The man whose son was healed testified, this woman testified, and the entire town was was, uh, impacted by what she had to say. What's important here is that there is an order to this. And you can't start at the end. You can't start testifying about someone you don't know. You can't start trusting in God for nourishment if you haven't repented and given your heart and your life to Him. And then furthermore, there's this other problem. And that is that sometimes we get caught up in the fact that after salvation, after repentance and and the renewing of life, we don't see the rest of it as... As central, it was an amazing thing to me when I learned that my own salvation was not just for me, it was for God and His glory. He turned me into a worshiper. I think what I bought into was you have the truth of God, the Spirit of God, it brought about repentance, and now I get prosperity and health and happiness the rest of my life. Some dead end road that God never promised and never really spoke of. He does promise to nourish us, he does promise to bless us, but that's not really the point. The point is that we would worship him in spirit and truth, and that we would proclaim him in our towns, in our villages, in our neighborhoods, in our families. And that's the that's the pattern, that's the order of things. So if we if we miss out on that, then we're just living out the gospel in a completely earthly way. As I said before, what if the woman at the well had had uh, been satisfied that Jesus could dr- drop a water pump down the well and just feed the village with, with physical, literal water and miss the entire point of the transforming power of the gospel. We also have a, an application here, sort of a, one of those negative examples, and that is when God is speaking to us, don't change the subject. Be willing to listen. And this, this is so... It's, it's easy not to change the subject when God is giving us a big warm hug and encouraging us, right? But what about those times when the Word of God is piercing our hearts and convicting us of sin? And there's a temptation to say, I'm not reading that passage. I'm going over here into the Psalms again, because I want a hug. And you ignore, you change the subject with God, and you don't let His Word penetrate you. Or what about your friend who's a prophet, who speaks a word of truth into your life, and you think, oh, that guy's so negative. I'm, not. I'm going to go find someone who has a gift of mercy and ask them to feed me. You know, it's it's fine. We all have different gifting, but when, when God's people are speaking words of truth into our lives, may we not ignore them. May we not change the subject. Listen to the voice that's calling you to repentance because the reward of repentance is its own to be made right with God and to be living in communion with Him. There's also a principle an application that we ought to... Hold near and dear, especially in tr- times of trouble. Desperation and faith go hand in hand. That's what we saw in the man who, who approached Jesus and would not be dissuaded from asking him to heal his son. He was desperate. He was at his wits' end. He had nowhere else to go. You know, I think many of us can testify that when we are at the end of our rope, when everything is at its worst and the bleakest, that's the moment when our faith suddenly can come to life. When we trust Him with the hardest and worst and most challenging fears of our lives and the most difficult moments. I also see a a principle in play here that believing is often a process. Believing is not... Now, I know we go from death to life somewhere along the way, and, and God knows that moment. For many of us, we don't know what that exact moment was. And we see examples here from this passage that there was a process of believing. The Samaritans believed the woman in her testimony, but then they went and spent time with Jesus, and they really believed. They believed because of who he was and what he, he and his disciples had to say to them after two days of being with them. And then the official believed enough that uh, Jesus could heal to ask him for healing. And then he believed that Jesus would, in fact, heal him. But then the Bible says that after he saw his son healed, he believed. It was a process. It was, it was all true. And somewhere in the, in, along the way, perhaps, you would say this: that we're passing over from death to life. But faith and belief is a, is a process. And may we be willing to, to endure that process in our own lives and, and to be patient with those that we're sharing our faith with as they, as they uh, go along that journey. And then finally this, a personal testimony matters. A personal testimony matters. God's Word and His truth from His Scripture is often sufficient for someone to read, to hear, or to observe in a, in a film, like the Jesus film or the, the audio Bibles that uh, Faith Comes By Hearing is, is sending around the whole world, and it's sufficient for people to believe but it's also equally true that God uses the testimony of those who have been impacted by, the king, by God for, their, for salvation, that that story, that testimony, is also going to help them to come to Christ. That's what happened with the woman's uh, family and friends in, their, in her town. That's what happened to this man's uh, family uh, when the son was healed. Our testimonies uh, have tremendous fruit, and we need to follow their examples. We need to invite people to come and see Him who brought me to repentance. We need to be transparent. We need to be willing to testify as to what God has done also in someone else's life. And let me explain that for a moment. When this man told his son, presuming he did, that Jesus Christ had healed him, he's testifying in that person's life. And any of us who are parents are are going to do that. We're going to tell our children... Let me remind you what God did for you. Let me remind you of when you, God saved you and you didn't know what you were doing, and you almost drowned and it's we're testifying to the power of God in someone else's life and not just our own and finally, finally, we are not called to do everything and that, this brings us back to my very first uh, discussion about combines uh, as much as it can be painful and difficult like for a missionary around the world to to sort of be at least for a season, to be stuck with doing absolutely everything that is not the the pattern of God, and that's not what He has in mind for his people in the body of Christ. We are not to be doing everything, but we are to be doing something. and so just look at at these these elements of the gospel and of, of proclaiming God's word that happened, just right here in these stories, we need to be talking to strangers and breaking down barriers. We need to be able and willing to share our testimonies, to explain Scripture to somebody. We need to pray for the lost, to plant seeds in the lives of those who may be far from Him. Perhaps we'll be uh, blessed to pray with someone to actually receive Christ, um, to be able to preach and teach the truth of the Word of God, to serve the lost, in just a, perhaps in, in a very practical way, To befriend someone who doesn't know Jesus. Uh, If nothing else, to be praying for those who are doing the same. Praying for our evangelists and missionaries, even as we did this morning. To send evangelists and missionaries and be part of their support teams. To mourn with those who are suffering and struggling. To invite people to church. To come and see all that God is doing in our midst. And to testify what what God is doing in our own lives and in their lives. Now, I'm not saying to do all of this all at once. I'm saying these are things that are unfolding in this story that we ought to consider as we're evaluating what our part is in this marvelous harvest of the kingdom of God. And if you can't think of anything else to do, then go into town and get food for the people who are doing God's work. All right, let's pray. Oh, Lord, Lord of the harvest, we. We want to lift up our eyes and trust you. And may we do that this morning. To lift up our eyes and trust you as the Christ, as Messiah, as the one who has come to redeem us and help us and save us. May we truly worship you in spirit and in truth because we have put our trust in you and the work that you accomplished for us on the cross. Help us to lift our eyes to the field around us and to respond as you lead by your spirit to respond to the calling to join you in the harvest, the harvest that you've already begun working in. Thank you for this reminder, and strengthen us for to be obedient to what you call us to. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.